Father in heaven, thank you so much, Lord, for bringing us together for another amazing prophecies meeting tonight. Lord, as we open your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be poured out. We pray that you would help us to understand this most important topic, Father. And I pray that Jesus would be lifted up, that I would not be seen, but that he would be seen. Forgive me of my sins, Lord, and I pray that your wonderful truth would shine forth tonight. Bless each one that's come and bless all those that are watching online. And Father, help us to be ready for your soon return, a day that we know is coming very soon, maybe even in our lifetimes. Thank you, Lord, for hearing this prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Many years ago, the home was a place of refuge and security. Down through the centuries, it has been a haven of stability. The home was a place where you could flee from your trials and, and, and the troubles and the difficulties of life, right? You enter into the doors of your house and you feel secure. You, you may get a hug from your husband or your wife or your mom or your dad. You feel that home is a place of love. It's a sense, it's a place where you feel good. But home, and home has been a traditional place of families being together throughout the ages. But in the last few decades, this has changed. In the last few decades, in the 21st century, the homes have become a battlefield. Words like abuse, conflict, anger, hostility, are commonplace, especially when we describe the home. And especially in the last year during the age of COVID, we've seen this even more, right? During the lockdowns where people are home for days or weeks or months or even over a year. And we've seen domestic abuse go up. We've seen the divorce rate go up. So much has happened to weaken the home in our society. The number of single parents continues to grow. The structure of the home is different today, isn't it, than it was many years ago? How many of you would say that's true? Many parents are also seriously concerned about what is coming into their home via the internet and via cell phones for their kids. The home used to be a safe sanctuary, but today, literally anything can enter through media, through television, through social media, violence, sex, and a total lack of decency can enter any one of our homes. A distortion of values is, is occurring right at our doorstep. Things are changing dramatically. A high-tech, media-savvy society which offers sex and violence and greed as its prime-time viewing is in serious trouble. Hollywood images penetrate our homes. The messages communicated produce tragic behaviors, especially in who? In our young people, even in our kids. Our children are exposed to various versions of right or wrong. They're competing values for the minds of our children. Do you know that the average 18-year-old witnesses 200,000 violent acts on television before they're 18? They witness 40,000 murders by the time they're 18 through media. You might be wondering, does the form of entertainment we watch make any difference in our thinking process? Does it really produce some of the violent behaviors we're seeing in society? What do you think? Without a moral compass, our society is thrown into a state of confusion. The society says, your own mind is the standard. The society says, there's nobody who can tell you what to do, right? The motto is what? If it feels good, do it. 
If it brings you pleasure, it's okay. But there was a wise man, his name was Solomon. He said this once. He said, he who trusts in his own heart is a what? You see, the mind can deceive you. You can justify almost anything if you depend on your own thoughts. In fact, Hosea chapter 8 and verse 7 says it this way. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. If you sow the wind, friend, you're going to reap the whirlwind. We've been sowing the winds of violence in the media, and we're reaping the whirlwind of crime. We've been sowing the wind of immorality, and we've been reaping the whirlwind of divorce and rape and child abuse. There is a cause and effect relationship, isn't there? And especially in the last year, in 2020, we've seen across society, across the ideological spectrum, we've seen violence in our cities. We've seen tension. We've seen racial tension and and, and ethnic tension, and we've seen political tension like never before. Here's a picture from Portland, Oregon, just last year. And of course, you remember this terrible scene at the Capitol in January. And it's all of us, friends. It's, it's not one side. It's not just the Democrats or the Republicans or the Independents. And it's not just, it's all races. All of us have been affected by the crumbling values of our society, have we not? The Bible said that times like these would come. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-4. to This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to who? To who? Do we see that today? Unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Mercy. Do we see that in our society today? Does that ring a bell as you listen to that list? Does it seem to describe the world in which we live? You've got to admit that this list from Paul is a pretty accurate description of the world in 2021. And the problem seems to be getting worse day after day, doesn't it? You and I live in a world of broken homes and endless lawsuits and violence in the streets. It's not the same world that many of us were born into. The violence seems to be getting more frequent and more brutal. And, you know, it's hard to imagine. And some of you, maybe, maybe you remember, I'm a little bit younger. Some of you that have been a little longer on this earth, you may remember a time when parents would allow their kids to just play and not worry about whether, whether they were going to be okay. Is that true? Was there a time when it used to be okay? When not everybody necessarily locked their door? You could go where you wanted and do what you wanted as long as you came home in time for supper. But that's not the world we live in now. Now a mother panics if she can't see her kids for a few minutes. And with a good reason. Now this is a profoundly religious nation. We call ourselves the Christian West. But for some reason, in spite of all this Christianity, we still feel the need to lock our houses. Isn't that true? And of course, the question is, how did this happen? How did the world change so quickly? Now, yes, it definitely has to do with the media, the things we talked about in the very beginning. Those have impacted our children and the way they think and the way way society is, no question. But maybe there's something else, too. Maybe there's some, some other reason why there is a crumbling of values in our society. Have any of you heard of 
something called, a theory called situation ethics. Has anybody heard of this? Situation ethics. All right, I see a few hands. Now, if you haven't heard of it, no worries. I'm going to explain, and when I explain it, you're going to understand what it is, okay? It was popularized by a famous professor named Joseph Fletcher back in the 1960s. And here's what it taught. It taught relativism. What did it teach? Relativism. It became very popular, and it became so popular that it began to be taught in almost all of our universities across the land. Now, what situation ethics teaches is that morality depends on the situation. You follow me? It depends on the situation. There are no hard and fast rules about what's right and wrong. Something that you normally consider to be wrong might be right if the circumstances are right. That's situation ethics. Now, you say, what is an example? Okay, now here's a, this is a weird example, but this is actually one of the examples that a professor would use. Let's suppose you crashed your car out in the country and your spouse is trapped underneath that vehicle. You're not strong enough to lift the car off, and so you run down the road looking for help, and eventually you find a house and you knock on the door, but no one answers. The people won't come out. They're nervous. They refuse to answer. And he just tells you to go away. Well, what do you do? That's when you notice that his son is playing out in the front yard, playing in the yard. Now, how hard would you be willing to twist that boy's arm in order to convince him to open the door or call for help? Of course, normally you would never do that, right? That would be wrong. It would be wrong to do that. But in this case, situation ethics would say you might consider it to save somebody's life. That's situation ethics. It teaches that anything might be right, given the right circumstances. If you can justify it, then you can do it. Here's the problem. Now we have a generation that isn't sure if there's such a thing as right and wrong. Instead of that's right or that's wrong, what we say is, well, it's true for me, and that's true for, it might not be true for you, right? If it's true for me, it's true for me, but it might not be true for you. Have anybody of you, have you heard people say that? That might be your truth, but it's not my truth. And if you listen very carefully to what people are saying, you'll hear echoes of the original question the serpent asked Eve in the Garden of Eden. Has God really said it's basically the same lie, repackaged for our generation. It doesn't change the morality of God outright, but instead it just raises questions. Maybe God didn't really mean it like this. And it always seems to use unusual situations, rare circumstances, to help confuse the matter. Examples like the one we referenced that would never really happen in real life, most likely. But it's a mental exercise that raises questions over biblical morality. And friends, it really has changed the way our generation thinks. There's an educational pamphlet that was passed out at many schools, handed out to many kids a number of years back. I want you to look at what it says. Very interesting. Here's what it says, a booklet for teenagers. Early on in life, you will be exposed to different value systems from your family, church, or synagogue and friends. You may accept some of these values without questioning whether or not they are the right values for you. But you may eventually realize that some of these values conflict with each other. Now, let's pause there. For, a, for the most part, that's right. That is an experience that a lot of kids go through. But I want you to notice, though, the subtle way it raises questions about morality. It says there are competing values in the world, which is true. But then it adopts a really neutral tone that makes it seem like there's a, a huge buffet of equally valid moral options. 
There are the values that everybody else has, and then there are the values that are right for you. In other words, everybody gets to decide for themselves. You become the final court of arbitration. You are the ultimate reference for right or wrong. Never mind what's right for everybody, just figure out what's right for you, because you're the standard. Listen to how the pamphlet concludes. It is up to you to decide your own value system to build your own ethical code. You will have to learn what is right for yourself through what? Through experience. In other words, we're teaching kids that they're at the center of the universe. There is no absolute right or wrong. Only what you say is right or wrong. We're teaching our young people to go with how they feel instead of what they know. And that's dangerous. Because as you know, feelings are notoriously a bad way to decide what's right and wrong, to assess reality. I mean, you can feel different based on what you ate last night or which side of the bed you got out on, right? Feelings are not a good way to determine it, friends. And this kind of thinking has led to some really troubling situations. Notice this story from the U.S. News and World Report, July 22, 2002. I know this was a few years ago, but it is absolutely striking. 73% of students said that when their professors taught about ethical issues, the usual message was that uniform standards of right and wrong don't exist. Did you catch that? 73%. Now that's true. If you've gone to a secular college or university any time in the last 40 years, you'll know that in philosophy or humanities classes, that is what they teach. Right? That's what they teach. And it's led to some really bad thinking. Look at this next statement. 10 to 20% of students could not bring themselves to criticize the Nazi extermination of Europe's Jews. Some students expressed personal distaste for what the Nazis did, but they were not willing to say that the Nazis were wrong, since no culture can be judged from the outside and no individual can challenge the worldview of another. If 20% of a class is confused about the mass murder of the Jews, the genocide, you can get confused about anything. Of course we can judge the Nazis. Of course we can say that that was absolutely wrong, right? But we live in a world that is getting more confused by the minute, and you've got to wonder, what effect is this having on our marriages? What effect is this having on our relationships? What is this doing to basic honesty in the world? And what's sad is that it's not just the secular world that's, that's saying this kind of stuff. It's the Christian world. Christians are saying it too. And Christians today are getting condemned as dogmatic and legalistic if they insist that God might have an immovable moral standard. Have you seen this? Now, I don't want to start naming individual issues, but you can think of some of them in your mind right now. Christians are often labeled as dogmatic if they have a stand. Now, there are people who are dogmatic and legalistic, people that are just plain nasty people, right? But it, is it legalism to say that God has a permanent moral standard? Thank you. Amen. If you and I choose to believe that human beings can build their own morality, we're going to run into trouble with the, ethic, with the ethics of Jesus. What do you say? Let me show you what I mean. Jesus said this, Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who, what? Does the will of my Father in heaven. 
Here's what I want you to notice. Jesus isn't talking to atheists or secular college professors. He's talking to deeply religious people, people who call him Lord. And one thing you're going to notice about the Bible is that it spends far more time talking about the sins of God's people than pointing fingers at the people who don't believe. And this passage is aimed directly at the people who claim to believe in God, but they're not on their way to heaven because they will not do the will of God. They refuse to do what's right. Now, does this sound like God has no standards, friends? Yes or no? Of course it doesn't. And of course, we all know that you can't do enough. You can't do good things to earn your way to heaven. We've studied that already, right? Salvation is a free gift. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, salvation is something for by grace you have been saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. But at the same time, Jesus says, how you behave still matters. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What word, friends? Lawlessness. What is the issue? Lawlessness. And again, notice, Jesus is talking to religious people. They call Jesus Lord, but then they live lawless lives. They're not doing what God asks for them to do. They're just going through the motions. They're having a form of godliness, but they are denying its power. They might put on a great church service. They might put on a nice suit. They might talk a good game. But at the end of the day, they're still lost because they don't do what God has asked them to do. Mercy, according to the Bible, contempt for God's moral standards is going to be a huge last day issue. Even among God's own people, Jesus makes it absolutely clear. Paul makes it absolutely clear. And unfortunately, you and I are the, are the generation that they are describing, I believe. So let's do a little bit of hard thinking. Are you with me? Let me ask you a difficult question. Are you ready? You're like, I don't know if I want another difficult question. There's too many difficult questions. <laughs> Has lawlessness crept into the Christian church? It's easy to point your finger at the world and say, look, they're practicing lawlessness. Look at all those, those bad TV shows and look at all those bad internet sites and look at all those social media posts. Lawlessness. And it's true. It all, it's bad. It's bad out there. But again, never forget, most of Bible prophecy is targeting who? God's people. The sins of God's people. The Old Testament points out the sins of God's people. And the New Testament points out the sins of the church. And when Jesus says there will be lawlessness in the last days, and Paul says there will be lawlessness in the last days, when the Bible predicts a falling away, it's not talking about outsiders, it's talking about who? The church! The professed people of God. So if we're going to be honest about Bible prophecy, should we be honest, yes or no? We should. We have to consider the possibility that we answer the, to this description, especially if this is the last generation, friends. A fairly, recent Gallup, a fairly recent Gallup poll made this uncomfortable discovery. There is very little difference in the behavior of the church and unchurched on a wide range of items, including lying, including lying cheating, and what? 
and stealing. Mercy. What did they discover? Christians are lying and cheating and stealing like everybody else. Do you know that when they've studied the divorce rate, the divorce rate among society is generally about the same as divorce rate as the divorce rate among professed Christians. Maybe when the world points at Christians and calls them hypocrites, maybe they have a point. Maybe our behavior is not consistent with what we're claiming to believe. Now, I hope you don't mind if I ask some additional hard questions. Where do modern Christians get the idea that the law, that sin rather, doesn't matter? Have you ever heard Christians say this? Or, in, or indicate that? Previous generations didn't think that way. Where do we get the idea that it's okay to live in conflict with God's moral law, to live any way we please? I'm going to show you something really interesting from a book on prophecy. I think this might help explain where our thinking started to go wrong. Now, this is a popular book on prophecy, a very popular book. The name of the author doesn't matter because you're going to find this in various types of Christian writing. But look at what this quote says. When he, as God's only begotten son gave himself to die on that cross for the sins of the whole world, he ended the age of law and introduced the age of grace from that time on. Individuals have been able to eternally be eternally saved through faith by repenting of their sins and calling on Christ to save them. That is why it is called the age of grace. Now, there's a lot of truth in this quote. We are saved by grace, amen? Yes, amen. And we can't earn our salvation. That much we know is true. But listen carefully to what he's also saying. He's saying that salvation comes by grace, through faith, only for people who lived after the cross of Christ. Only for people in the New Testament era. That would mean that before the cross, there must have been some other way to be saved. I mean, there must have been because Hebrews 11 tells me that all those Bible characters, all those heroes of faith, it says they're going to be in heaven too. How were they saved? Were they saved by their obedience? Were they saved by the sacrifices that they made? If that's true, would that mean that God actually has two different methods of salvation? Absolutely not. Hebrews 10.4 makes it absolutely clear that animal sacrifices couldn't save anybody. It says it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. The fact is, friends, there is only one way to heaven. One way. What is that way? Jesus Christ. Old Testament or New Testament, listen to the words of the Bible. Neither is there salvation in any other. Acts 4, verse 12. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Amen. It doesn't say unless you lived in the Old Testament. It says there is only one way. And that one way is who? It is Jesus. Amen. The Bible always teaches very clearly that salvation has always been through Jesus. You and I look back to the cross by faith. We believe that the cross saves us. Right? right? Praise God. The Old Testament people, they looked forward to the cross by faith. Remember, all those sacrifices. Remember, we studied the sanctuary last night. Remember? All of those articles of furniture, all of those feasts, they were all pointing forward to who? To Jesus. The Bible teaches in the book of Romans that the just shall live by what? By faith. And many good people think that's a New Testament concept. 
but he was actually quoting the Old Testament. He was quoting from the book of Habakkuk. The just shall live by his faith. Now follow me carefully, friends, because a lot of Christians have gotten where they're preaching something that just isn't true. Salvation has been the same for every generation. Old Testament or New Testament. Salvation has always been through Jesus. It's just that in the Old Testament, the cross hadn't happened yet. They were looking forward by faith. Hebrews says that Abel offered a better sacrifice by faith, right? Nobody earned it. Nobody shed enough animal blood to to buy a spot in the kingdom of heaven. They were acting by faith, looking forward to the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Friends, there is no age of law and then an age of grace when it comes to salvation. You read the Bible carefully and you're going to see it has always been the age of grace. Amen? Always been the age of grace. In fact, the Bible says very explicitly that Abraham was not saved by keeping the law. He was saved by his faith. Romans chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. I love these verses here. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was what? Accounted to him for righteousness. How was he saved according to this text? Because he believed God, right? He had a relationship with God based on his faith. Old Testament, New Testament, everybody who has ever been saved, whoever will be saved, is saved by faith. The grace of Jesus Christ, which is offered freely to each one of you listening to me here tonight. Praise God. That much is crystal clear. But some people are still confused. They insist that the Old Testament was the age of law. And they get confused because the Bible does say that there was a law that was abolished when Jesus died on the cross. Now, some of you might be asking, and I can see a future quiz question on this. What does that mean? What did the Bible mean when it said there was a law that was on the cross? It's simple, friends. The Bible talks about more than one kind of law. There are really two major categories of laws in the Bible, okay? How many major categories? Two, all right. On the one hand, you've got the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, which we find them where? Exodus chapter 20. By the way, I want to encourage you, go home and read the Ten Commandments tonight. Amen? Go home and read them tonight. It'll be good reading for you before you go to bed. They were engraved in stone by the very finger of God. It's an incredible story. It was the law that they kept inside of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we didn't talk about what was inside. Remember, we looked at the picture of that beautiful ark where the mercy seat and the presence of God was over the mercy seat. Inside was the ark where, inside that ark, one of the items were the tables of stone that God had actually written the law on. And the Ten Commandments contain those principles that are true for all time. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery, and so on. All those commandments that we know. But then there was another law that the Israelites kept beside the Ark of the Covenant. And on this law, this was the ceremonial law that was written in human handwriting. It was the law that told you how to sacrifice animals, how to keep the feasts, how to run the temple. So friends, between these two laws, which one do you think would it make sense that became unnecessary when Jesus died? A plus. You guys got it all right. Even those of you online, if you want to type in the answer to that, which law? It was the ceremonial law because when Jesus died on the cross, 
he became the Lamb of God, right? He fulfilled those ceremonies. That's why the hand of God, remember we talked about how the veil was ripped in two from top to bottom the day that Jesus died. They no longer needed the sacrificial system because the real lamb had come. We no longer needed the earthly temple because the real high priest was going into where? Heaven's sanctuary to represent us before the throne of God. Amen. Salvation has always been by faith. There has never been another way. We look back to the cross. The people in the Old Testament looked forward to the cross. And when Jesus died, the ceremonial law was dismissed because we no longer needed it. But the moral law, the Ten Commandments, were they dismissed? Do you know why? It's because the moral law defines sin. It tells us what sin is. I like the way the old King James puts it here. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth, that's a tongue twister, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is what? The transgression of the law. What is sin, everyone? It is the transgression of the law. So here's an easy question. Do we still have sin in our world tonight? Yes or no? Absolutely. Yes, we do. That means people are breaking, sadly, God's moral law. If the moral law was abolished at the cross, if those laws didn't matter, then sin wouldn't even exist. And if sin didn't exist, there would be no such thing as sinners. And if there were no sinners, there would be no need for a Savior. And you know that's not true. So if there is still such a thing as sin, there is still such a thing as a moral law that people are violating. Does Does that make sense? And yet some people insist that God abolished his moral law at the cross. Some people say that Jesus abolished the Ten Commandments and it no longer applies to Christians. And some of you are thinking, well, that's crazy. I have literally heard this on Christian programs. Have you heard it? You've heard it on Christian television, in books. But if you look in the Bible, that's not what you find. In fact, if you look in the Bible, you find just the opposite. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till what? All is fulfilled. Now, what, is, what does Jesus mean when he says a jot or a tittle? Somebody think, what is that? A, a jot is like dotting an I. Very minute. A tittle is like crossing a T. In other words, not even one tiny detail will pass from the law. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whosoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now let's be honest with what the Bible says. Does that sound to you like God's moral law has been abolished? Absolutely not. In fact, do me a favor. I want you to do me a favor. You guys ready? A little illustration. I want you to lift one of your legs up. Just lift it off the floor. You got it? All right, now I want you to stomp down as hard as you can. All right, now lift the other leg. Okay, now stomp down as hard as you can. Is the earth still beneath your feet tonight? Let me ask you a question. According to Jesus, does that mean that God's law is still in effect? Absolutely. As long as the earth is still beneath our feet, God's law is still in effect, friends. Is that much clear tonight? 
But wait a minute, I thought the Ten Commandments were just for the Jews, you said. God gave them to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. And I'm not a Jew, so therefore it doesn't really apply to me. I've heard people say that too. Well, let's think about that. If that's true, if God made up His moral law at Mount Sinai, and sin is the transgression of the law, then that would mean there was no sin before Moses. We know that's not true, right? The question is, did the Ten Commandments exist before Mount Sinai? Well, let's think about Abraham. Let me ask you a question. Was Abraham a Jew? It's a trick question. Okay. The Jews consider him the father of the Jewish people, but he was not a Jew. There were no Jews for several hundred years until after Abraham. And yet, listen carefully to one of the things that God liked best about Abraham. Genesis 26, verse 5. Because that Abraham, what? Obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Think about this carefully. The Bible teaches that Abraham was keeping God's commandments hundreds of years before Mount Sinai. We already know that Abraham was saved by faith. Amen? He was not saved by works. And yet the Bible is clear that Abraham kept God's law. Amen? It's not as if God was bored one day, friends, and said, you know, let's just see if I can think up some new rules to ruin everybody's life. (laughs) Is that what the Ten Commandments are? That's not what God is like. There are some very good reasons for God's moral law. I I, I used to like to describe it as, you know, if you're on a windy mountain road and you've got a guardrail on the edge of that road, that guardrail is to protect you, right? It's to protect you from veering off and going off the edge. That's like God's law. It keeps us safe on the journey of life. And the Ten Commandments just make good sense. I mean, who who wouldn't want to live in a world where everybody keeps those laws, right? I want to live in a world where people don't steal. I don't want to have to lock my door all the time and install a security system. I want to live in a place where nobody murders or or rapes other people or abuses people. I would sleep a lot better at night. I would like to live in a place where people keep their word and they don't commit adultery. I've been in places, I don't know about you, where morality doesn't matter very much. And I can tell you, God's way is better. God's laws make good sense, but furthermore, God's law is actually a picture of who God is. The moral law exists because God exists, and God is good, and God is love. When God says, do not murder, he's saying, I want you to value life because I value life. When God says, don't bear false witness, he's saying, I want you to be honest because I am honest. When God says, don't steal, he's saying, I want you to respect other people because I respect other people. See, the law is a picture of God himself. It shows us what God is like. And do you know why the devil hates the law so much? He knows that anybody who studies that law will discover that God is everything he's ever claimed to be. They're going to discover that God is love. That's why the devil wants lawlessness. Not just because he wants people to act badly. He wants to destroy the character of God. He's trying to keep you from writing God's name in your, on your head and in your heart. And you say, well, I'm pretty sure that I've heard that God abolished the law. Friends, I know I've heard it too, but let me assure you, it's completely impossible for God to get rid of his moral law because it's the picture of who he is. God doesn't change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. And to be honest, I wouldn't want a God who changes. Everything in this world changes. I want something that doesn't change. Amen. I want to know that when God says he loves me, he's not going to change his mind. 
When God says he is merciful, that he's not going to change that mercy. When God says that I can be a part of his kingdom, that the cross of Christ is enough to secure my salvation, I want to know that that's not going to change. Do you? I like the fact that you can always trust God. And if you let him, he will start to write those moral principles, his own very character, right on your heart. He'll write his name on your forehead, and you will become like Jesus. Listen to the promise of the Word of God. This is from the book of Hebrews. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into where? Into their hearts. And into their minds I will write them. Don't forget, friends, there's a battle raging for the human mind. And tonight God says, if you'll just let me in, I will help you win this battle. I'll make a new creature out of you. Let me write my name in your forehead. Let me write my character in your heart. Let me change you. That's how you can tell the difference between those who profess godliness and those who are willing to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. There were a lot of people, thousands of people attending an evangelistic meeting similar to this one in Romania one time many years ago. And one evening, there was a young gypsy man who was about 20 years old, and the pastor was back in the dressing room getting ready for the service, and the man comes back. The pastor was surprised he was there, and this young man had another friend with him. And he said to the pastor through a translator, do for my friend what you did for me. The pastor looked at him and was like, well, what do you mean for your friend what I did for you? I I haven't done anything for you. If anything has been done, God has done it. The gypsy said, I don't know how to explain it. I just want you to do for my friend what you've done for me. So the pastor said, well, what have I done for you? And right at that moment, he, he brought out his arms, and on his arms were scars, knife scars all over his arms. And then he said, To the pastor, he said, I've spent all of my time out on the streets fighting, and all these scars are from the knife fights that I've had. But when I came to these meetings, I was an alcoholic. And as I listened to the Word of God, something strange began to happen in me. I no longer want to be fighting, and now now I no longer have a desire to drink. I'm free. Now I want you to do for my friend what you've done for me. His poor friend was standing there, kind of swaying. His hair was all dirty. His face was blotchy. He could barely stand up. His eyes could barely stay open. The pastor looked at this other young man and he said, young man, do you want to be free from this terrible habit? He said, yes, pastor. How badly do you want to be free? Asked the pastor. He said, with all my heart. Then if you want to be set free, God can give you the grace to deliver you tonight. All you have to do is ask for it. So the pastor said, let's kneel down, and they knelt down. The poor young man swayed until he finally got to his knees. The pastor knelt with him and said, you pray. And so he prayed. He wept as he prayed. Then the pastor said, young man, go home and don't drink anymore. The amazing thing is that for the next two weeks, both of these men continued coming to the meetings with their wives. The two gypsy girls went running up to the the pastor and embraced him. And they said, you wouldn't believe what happened. Our husbands now are sober. They are clean. They are, their hair is combed. They're, they're well-dressed. They're, they're in their right man. These are not the same two men that had been here when, when this meeting started. The grace of God had transformed their hearts 
Through the grace of God, these two young men became free and sober and loving young husbands to their wives. Something marvelous had happened to them. They're not out on the streets anymore, fighting and drinking. Now their lives were transformed by the grace of God. Something miraculous had happened. The grace of God, friends, is what gives you and me the power to follow the law, to live like Jesus wants us to live. Amen? 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says this, Now by this we know Him. Now by this we know that we know Him. If we what? If we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. Friends, we, we demonstrate that we know Jesus by following what He's asked us to do. And He will give us power to follow Him, just like He did in those two men's lives. We have to be willing to follow Him. Jesus said, in the last days, people will say, Lord, Lord, but they won't do the will of the Father. Friends, when we do that, it's not a real relationship. Paul describes that as a form of godliness, but denying the real power of Christ. How can you identify a real Christian? They follow Jesus wherever He goes. Yes, they make mistakes, but they pick back up. I know some people, have, you've here to, you, you're here tonight, maybe some of you have struggled with different habits or addictions. You've gone through different struggles in your life. You've had ups and downs. I'm here tonight to tell you, keep going in the right direction. God says He is with you. In Revelation 14, the Bible says that God's name is written in the foreheads of His last day people. And then you see another description of them just a few verses later. Revelation 14 and verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the what? The commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. We can have that perfect faith as we have faith in Christ. God's name is a picture of His perfect character and He wants to write that character on your heart, friend. The people who have given their hearts and minds to God, they want to do what God asks them to do. And in the last crisis, that's what makes the devil furious with them. Revelation 12, 17 says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And, and again, the woman represents the church. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep what? The commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. You see, in the end, there are only two sides. One group follows the dragon. The other group follows the lamb. Those are your only two options. And when the devil sees people who keep the commandments of God, it makes him angry. Why? It's because those people are proving that he is a liar. Those people are showing the truth about God to the whole world. They live by God's moral principles. And because of that, the whole world can see that God is love. Jesus once said, I have shown your name to my disciples. And in the last days, God has a people who will do the same thing. They show the name of God, the character to the world. As we love other people, as we show them the character of Jesus. And why do they do it? Because they have to? Out of obligation? Because they have a checklist? Because they want to be sure they cross everything off so they qualify for heaven? No, friends. Not at all, right? The reason is very simple. Why do they do those things? If ye love me, Jesus said, keep my commandments. Can you say it with me, please? Say it with me, those of you that are watching online. If you love me, keep my commandments. Friends, it is as simple as that. 
Nobody's trying to buy their way to heaven. Nobody's going to earn brownie points. You simply love Jesus and you do it. Now, I am not a married man, okay? I've admitted that before. How many of you, uh, no, sure. Those of you that are married, you know what I'm talking about, or you've been in a marriage relationship, okay? When you come home, husbands, I'm talking to the husbands. Are the husbands listening? <laughs> when you guys come home and you do something nice for your wife, let's say you clean up the room or you wash the dishes, dishes or you mow the grass or, or maybe you even put the toilet seat up or down or whatever you're supposed to do in the right way, right? Did I get it right or wrong? Okay. Wives, when your husband throws the clothes on the ground, when he doesn't do the dishes and you do them anyway, when you do those loving things for him, do you do it out of obligation because he's your husband? Ideally. <laughs> no, right? You don't do those things because you have to. You do them because you love them, right? Amen? You do it out of love. Some people say, well, it's against my nature to do those things. <laughs> it is against your nature, but love will make you do things you couldn't do otherwise, right? Have any of you ever experienced that? That love will make you do something that you naturally wouldn't want to do, but because you love the person, you do it joyfully, right? Look at it this way. That's how it is with God. Sometimes it's against our nature. We want to do what we want to do, but we follow what God wants us to do because we love him. Amen? But wait a minute. You say, aren't there passages in the New Testament that explicitly say that the commandments have been abolished? Well, no, there aren't. Some people think there are, but that's because they haven't read the whole thing. Just look at a couple of them. Here's one passage that some people find confusing. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Aha, you see? The law is gone, some people say. Was that what it says? Look carefully. Paul says you can't be justified, you can't earn your salvation by keeping the law, which is absolutely true. Jesus purchased your salvation, and keeping God's law doesn't buy you a spot in heaven, amen? But some people will go one step further, further with this text, and they take it to mean that the moral law is gone. But again, that's because they didn't read the whole thing. Listen to what it says just a couple verses later. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we what? We establish the law. In other words, the fact that Jesus had to die for our sins establishes the eternal per permanence of God's law, and the fact that we are saved by the blood of Christ makes us want to keep it. Amen. There's one more text also found in the book of Romans. This one really gets some people. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under... And, you, and some people say, well, there you go. The law is abolished because now we're living under grace. Obviously, God's moral law is gone. Not quite. Let me ask you an uncomfortable question. and You don't have to answer out loud. Have you ever been pulled over by the cops? <laughs> All right, I got some people that are very bold. They've been pulled over. All right, I've been pulled over at least five times, okay? At least five times, amen. <laughs> and I will tell you, there have been times when I've been pulled over and the cops have had mercy on me. Now, more often they've had mercy on me. One time when I had my girlfriend in the car, at the time, and she was the one driving, and she knew that if she started crying, then the cop would have mercy on her. <laughs> sure enough, she started, and she was actually very sad about it. She started crying, this is when I was in high school, okay? And she started crying, and sure enough, the cop was like, oh, I'm so sorry, you were going 70 and a 40, that's all right. Um, 
I, don't, don't, don't cry, little girl. You were going 70. It's okay. Now, let me ask you a question. At that moment, were we under the law? Yes, we were. We had broken the law. We were guilty. There was nothing we could do except wait for a ticket. But that cop was moved by those tears, right? And so even though we deserved a ticket, even though she deserved a ticket, we were guilty. We didn't have to pay the price. Amen? The warning was grace. It's a pardon that you don't deserve. You're free to go. There's no ticket, no penalty. That's what it means. You're under grace. Amen. So let me ask you, if you're under grace, do you have blanket permission to now ignore the laws of the land and drive as fast as you want to go? Absolutely not. In fact, when you get an undeserved pardon, if any of you have gotten a speeding ticket, amen, you drive pretty slow for the next few weeks, right? <laughs> Let's look at that verse again. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under what? You and I have a pardon that we don't deserve. We don't have to pay the price for being under the law because Jesus paid for that. Amen? So now we live under grace, but that doesn't mean we're free to drive as fast as we want. In fact, listen to this very next verse, the part nobody ever seems to read. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you see how easy this is if we read all the Bible in context, friends? The purpose of the law is to show us the character of God and at the same time to show us by contrast what we look like. It's like a mirror. James chapter 1, verses 23 to 25. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Now, James calls, calls the law of God the law of what? The law of liberty. That's because you're not actually, you're not, no one's free in a world where we live with murder and theft and adultery. Nobody's really free when we're lost in sin. Isn't that right? You and I are not free until we're living in the kingdom of God. And James says that God's law is like a mirror. It shows you what you really look like. God's, when God's law says, you shall not steal, you begin to notice that you have been less than honest in your life. When God's law says that you ought to value human life, you notice that Jesus says hatred is the same thing as murder. Your own record begins to look far less perfect than you thought. Now, how many of you, before you came to this meeting tonight, looked in a mirror? Just by a show of hands. How many of you, now, why do you look in a mirror? Right? See, you want to make sure you look good, right? Now, let me ask you a question. If I went, and by the way, whenever I look into the mirror these days, <sighs> I see more gray. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> but when I look into the mirror, sometimes I'll see things I need to change, right? Like, for example, I look in a mirror and I see that I have a piece of spinach in my tooth. Or maybe I see that I have a stain on my shirt. Or maybe even I see a pimple on my forehead. Now, if I see these things, and I see them in the mirror, and then I get mad, and I just decide to smash the mirror to solve the problem, does that solve the problem? Do I still have the stain and the spinach and the pimple? <laughs> I may have smashed the mirror. I still have the problem. What does the mirror do? It simply shows me the problem, right? So what do I need to do? I need to brush my teeth, wash my shirt, and pop the pimple. <laughs> right? No, I know. I'm sorry. I mean, but really and truly, that's right. I need to clean up those things that the mirror shows me. That's what the law is, friends. The same is true with God's Ten Commandments. It points out our flaws. 
The solution is not to smash the law or to abolish the law. That doesn't solve anything. The law is good because it helps us to see how much we need a Savior. Amen? Because who's the only one that can clean us up? Jesus, right? Psalms chapter 19 and verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, what? Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. Amen. How does the law convert the soul? It shows us our sins and drives us to Jesus. It forces us to stand at the foot of the cross and deal with who we really are. It forces us to deal with reality. Now, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Some of you may not have ever heard this. There are pigs and there are sheep. What kinds of people? Pigs and sheep. Some of you are saying, Pastor, what's wrong with you? A pig and a sheep are both running through the field and they fall into a big mud puddle. Both of them are dirty, and in that regards, they're the same, right? But the pig and the sheep react very differently. The pig loves the mud. He rolls around, oinking and enjoying it. You'll never get him to come out. But the sheep is different. He doesn't like the mud. So he climbs out of the puddle, and where does he go? He goes to the shepherd, who's more than happy to clean him off. Friends, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says you and I are both stuck in the mud. Stuck in the mud. We have all broken God's law, right? The only real question now is what are we going to do about it? Are we going to run to the shepherd and let him clean us off? I know some of you are wondering, what does this have to do with Bible prophecy? Well, it has everything to do with Bible prophecy. Remember this, Revelation 12, 17. The dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. It is a huge last day issue. Look at this description of God's last day people who keep the what? The commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. What does the dragon hate, friends? He hates the people who have the testimony of Jesus and keep the commandments of God. And the Bible says the same thing in Revelation 14. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the what? The commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This is a description of God's last day people. In the ancient Roman world, prisoners of war were often sold as slaves. And there's a story about a slave who was on auction in a public market. And this slave, he did not want to be sold. As the bidding started, he was spitting at the audience and he was swearing that he would never work for any of these bidders. He was spitting at them and swearing at them. But that didn't seem to stop the Romans, and the bidding continued, and and it kept getting higher and higher. But there was one man who kept bidding it higher. He kept, he was determined to buy this angry slave. And every time someone raised the bid, he would raise it a little bit more. And eventually, he won. And he brought that bitter man, and he led him out of the market in chains. I will never serve you, the slave sputtered. And that's when they turned down the road. The owner stopped. And suddenly he took out a key. And he put it in the locks on those chains. And the chains fell away. The man couldn't believe it. He backed up in in astonishment. And and then without thinking, he started to, to quickly back up. And then he started to run. But then after a few seconds, he came to himself and he stopped. And he slowly walked back to the man who was still standing there where he had let him go. And he said to him, he said, you mean to say that you paid all this money just to set me free? That's right, said the man. Well, he couldn't couldn't understand. He said, well, 
in that case, I've got nowhere else to go. If you have me, I'll come and work for you. And he worked for that man for the rest of his life. Some years ago, friends, Jesus climbed a hill with a cross on his back. It wasn't his cross. It was yours. And even though he was perfectly innocent, he purchased you with his life. He paid everything he had to set you free. Everything he had. Heaven poured out everything to set you free. And tonight you're free to respond however you want. But honestly, how could you ever say no to a God who loves you that much? How could you ever say no to Jesus? I want to serve him the rest of my life. Do you? Amen. I serve him because I love him. Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. God's plans tonight for you are bigger than you can imagine. They are better than you can imagine. And tonight you may have realized that you're not living according to God's law. But tonight that can change. Tonight you can allow God to start etching his own heart and mind on yours. You may not be perfect. You will make mistakes, but I I promise you that. But tonight you're sensing that you want something more. You want to surrender your heart to Jesus. Tonight you can see what he paid for you. And with his help, you want to start living differently. If that's your response tonight, if you want to say, Lord Jesus, I want to love you. I want to keep your law because I love you. Would you just stand with me as we pray? Father in heaven, as we think about the incredible price that you paid on Calvary's cross, Lord, none of us deserve the love that you gave us. You poured out all of heaven so that we could be set free. And Lord, tonight we want to say thank you. We want to say thank you, Jesus, for dying for our sins. And we want to respond by saying, Lord, that we love you. Help us to keep your law. Of ourselves, we have no power. But Lord, tonight we want to surrender our hearts to you. Lord, there's somebody here tonight who may have a habit or something they're struggling with. They may have a burden. Lord, we want to lay those at the foot of the cross. Like that young man in the story from the evangelistic series who gave up his drinking, Lord, tonight, whatever it is, we want to just say, Lord, take control. Change our hearts. Write your law on our minds and on our hearts and help us to live for you. Lord, we love you. We want to be ready when you come. I pray that everyone here standing in this auditorium, everybody watching online, that all of us would be ready for that day. May nothing separate us from you, Father. May we keep your commandments as we love you by the power of the Holy Spirit living in our hearts. And thank you for what you're going to do to answer this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.